today. A lot of family from the from the holiday weekend and probably bellies full. I pray that your your bellies are not quite full enough with the Word of God that till the end of our life we are always asking for Christ to feed us with the bread of life. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Turn to Song of Solomon. I'm making a 180 degree turn from the last time I preached to you, we talked about the law of sin and death and biblical justice. On this part, it's a lot more easier to take to the human soul. The love of Christ for his church, the love of Christ for his bride. That maybe you don't know, not all of you anyways, that someday we're going to be married to him in heaven. This relationship will be sweet and everlasting, something to look forward to, even though in this time of trial and tribulation in this evil age, we still are those who have this hope in the groom and the bride motif that's in the Bible and how we will eventually be married to Christ our King. Starting at verse 1, we're just going to read to verse 4. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me to his chambers. Probably the most famous verse in the Song of Songs, or the Psalm of Solomon's, is that I have entered into his chambers and his banner over me is love. But the Song of Solomon is more than just that one verse. It is a song to which, well, let's put it this way, from a very, very um, sinful king who still is in the grace of God, falling in love with a woman, a Shulamite woman from the, ta- from the village of Shuman. And that's all that we really know more of her, but we know more, much more, of Solomon himself. Before we talk more about this relationship, because that's what this book is, it is, as the title of the sermon is, Poetry in Motion. That's an old song. Some of you will remember it. Um, It's got a great lyric to it. But this poetry in motion is between a groom and his bride that leads to a marriage, consummation of that marriage, and ultimately tranquility within that marriage. The theme of this book is Christological. That is, it's about Christ. On the other hand, we cannot not notice the very essence of what the book is talking about with the relationship itself, a man and a woman. Now, some people would explain this way and say, this is just simply an allegory. And the, the, the man Solomon and you know, is not the king, but he's just a manufactured figure to create this picture that allows the reader to gain some insight. But that is just the opposite of what this book really is. We know that Solomon will use his name seven times in this book. He will also refer to himself as king. Kind of like uh, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that? 
I should say parable. It's not a parable. And the reason why we don't call it a parable is the fact that that real names are used. Lazarus, Abraham. That's why we don't define it that way. We define this as a real narrative of a real relationship because names are used. And so with that, we don't call it an allegory. We don't even call it a metaphor. But there is metaphor within it. Some of the metaphors, excuse me, are graphic. And I have to be choose the right, you could say, uh, places within the book to illustrate the relationship. It is a historical narration and what scholars call a poetic dialogue. Now, I don't know about you, but automatically that just hits my heart with a divine arrow. The reason why that is the case is because of the fact that could you imagine, can you imagine that God thinks of you? We, we being a, a reformed church, surely we are those who recognize that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We were always in the thoughts of God. At no point could we say God decided at one moment within eternity past and decided to think about us because that would make him mutable, not immutable. Therefore, God is consistent in his love. And as he, as he sheds that love upon us through his only begotten son, he gives these pictures of this divine love that he's been thinking about us all along. Poetic dialogue. Solomon is, Solomon is a groom, and he is drawing near to a woman who we only know by a Shulamite woman. We are not even given her name. <clears throat> Solomon here in this book also is a type of Christ. You will find that motif within all of the scripture, especially in your New Testament. If I remember, I'll reread uh, chapter 22 of the book of Revelation in relationship to the fact that uh, that book ends with a uh, groom and bride motif. The end of history ends with a marriage with the Lamb of God. There's an admission here, and I want you to see in chapter 6. Go to chapter 6. Because, you know, this is the elephant in the room. It really is. And if we have unsaved people here and they have any understanding at all about Old Testament history, Solomon will stand out like many of the Old Testament. But as one who has, what, 699 wives, right? 300 concubines. At this time of Solomon's relationship, we have as follows. Verses 8 through 10 of Solomon, Songs of Solomon, chapter 6. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines, the maidens without number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. She is her mother's only daughter. She is the pure child of the one who bore her. The maidens saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines also, and they praised her, saying, who is this that grows like the dawn, as beautiful as the full moon, as pure as the sun, and as awesome as an army of banners? And that banner over her is love. She's a special woman. By the way, every husband in here better say that to his wife. She is your only special woman. Even your mother father are not 
in the same way, demonstrating the holy divine trinity in, in personhood, in distinction and in love, in companionship, as husband and wife do. It's that important for your relationship to be at peace and praiseworthy to God. So Solomon even admits in his letter that he has this many concubines and queens or wives. So someone might logically say here, and someone who is not saved, or even some Christian might even say, not understanding the Bible very well, they might say, well, who in the world ever would choose him as an example of love, right? In the same breath, even the Bible does say, those who are righteous shall be my mentor. But I would say to you, who would even use you to come to this church and enters its halls? Or for the music group to sing, such sinners they are, and me to be up here preaching to you the greatest of sinners. To use any of you in relationship to one another in fellowship and love and teaching one another and encouraging one another in a fellowship. You're nothing but sinners, are you not? But sinners saved by grace. And by the grace of God, the Song of Solomon is given to us in an imperfect way. Not in a perfect way as it communicates truth, but in a perfect way using a man like Solomon. I have an omission too. I turn to this. I have to be honest to you. Because I'm a guy. Guys shouldn't be going to the Song of Solomon with poetry and emotion in this world anyways, right? Come on now, we're a little bit... We're men. Don't read the Song of Solomon. Read some of the battle scenes with David. That's the place to go, right? Ah, God intends to hit the male human heart just as much as the female human heart. And I go to it often. It's not easy to live with God, to say that I have a relationship with God. Rather than, and thank God for this, that we don't dictate the relationship terms, God does. And he puts together the relationship in divine ordinance, male and female only. Male and female, husband and wife only. And so, even though the relationship is difficult with God, he condescends to men. He condescends to all of us in poetry and in song. When you read Psalm 139, somewhere about, I can't remember the verse, but there are three verses there that literally... It says uh, just before it, Thou hast seen my unformed substance is written in a book, the days that were ordained for me, when there was yet there was not one of them. And three verses after that are all about God thinking of us. Can you imagine that? I don't know about you. I wake up, I see in a mirror an aging man who still sins more than he would like. And God thinks of me. God loves me. Enough to sing to me in poetry and song by using others? Yeah. God is a good God. He gets a bad rap from the world. And we must defend him for his love for us. And the greatest of love, of course, is his son's sacrifice. 
in chapters 1 through 3. By the way, normally when someone says, we're going to do an overview of a book, they all go like, uh, right? So this overview, I hope, doesn't turn out to be like that. Because even though it's an overview, it has so many intentional words of love from God to you and to me. This is a relationship first that, by the way, the song, I should say Solomon, uh, initiates. The Shulamite woman is a woman who actually has a family who actually has in the village of Shuman a vineyard. So Solomon determines to go up. She probably came from his harem. But he wants to get closer to her. But as a king, it's his prerogative to dictate the rules of the romance. So she comes closer. She says, literally, Why should I be like one who veils herself? Even her maidens say, Pastor, your Young goats by the tents of the shepherds. Get a little closer. We thought forwardness was just limited to the 20th and the 21st century, and it just simply is untrue. What has been lost in this culture, in this generation and age, is the modesty, is true, genuine, godlike love, and patience to do it right. And that means in relationship to God and with one another as husband and wife. This woman is a farm girl of farm girls. She's blackened by the sun. We might say, well, I have a farm tan, or someone has a bathing suit tan. She is tanned by working and laboring in the sun day after day after day. So her olive skin has now turned blackened, according to Solomon, and he is greatly attracted to her. Solomon recognizes this darkened girl and responds with his own forwardness. How beautiful you are, my darling. And yet, he's unwilling to be rushed in this relationship, this courtship. He says, you will not awaken my love until it pleases me. Now, I hope as I preach this outline of the text that you're getting the overtones and Christology of understanding that Solomon is a type of Christ and he is the one who determines the rules and only he can awaken himself. We cannot awaken him. He responds to us in grace. We, yes, through our prayers and through our advances to him, we desire him to come closer, but that is the king's prerogative to do it as he pleases. The Shulamite woman yearns privately and says, My beloved is mine and I am his. In my bed I said I must arise in the city and I must seek him in whom my soul loves. When I found him whom my soul loves, I held on to him and would not let him go. They have finally met in the vineyard. They, in poetic words, have embraced as those who are sharing their love in a courtship. And that basically is something that we uh, are um, talking about in relationship 
to the four or five categories. Depends on how you do it. When you outline a book like this, I actually stole Charles Ryrie's outline of the book. So I have to give credit to where credit is due. Charles Ryrie is a scholar from Dallas uh, Theological Seminary. And actually, this is the Ryrie Study Bible I bought decades ago. He, lead, he brings up four categorical, categorical areas, and that is the courtship, what we just went through. He brings up the marriage and the consummation of the marriage. He brings up trouble within the marriage. How real is this book? Then he also brings up the peace and the tranquility of a marriage after it's gone for a while. Every Christian salvation experience is different. And you might say, well, what does it have to do with this? You could consider, in my opinion, subjectively at the least, and maybe even at the most, that our salvation experience is based on the fact that God established as king over our lives, as creator of our souls, the courtship with you and I. We are saved differently in the sense that some of the courtship for some of you when you got saved was long. Some of you came from Christian families and you heard the word of God all the time and that familiar voice of the groom was always in your ears. And then there were those of us who were just downright worldly, pagan, sinners of sinners. And we were saved quickly. The courtship was short. I was saved in my bed just reading a little pocket Bible. One minute I'm reading this book. I don't think it was the Song of Solomon, but even if it was, I'd say, well, I don't know what this stands. And I get to the next verse and I said, this is all true. My God's courtship with me, when he drew closer to me in that vineyard, in that garden, he is the one who acted solely to bring grace to my heart. And for so many of you here, the courtship was longer. But it was all by grace. It was all by grace. Spiritual love takes time. From God's perspective, it took the perfect amount of time. When we read the Song of Solomon, we see ourselves yearning and yearning to God and to be married to him. To say, my beloved is mine and I am his. Not just Solomon and the Shulamite woman, but we should long and yearn for that. The second category, of course, is the marriage. And within that short context of chapter 4, we have both the consummation of the marriage and the marriage itself, of course. Solomon's honeymoon is probably in a palace. Remember, these are real historical event, events put in poetry or poetic dialogue to describe the love of God for you and I as Solomon is a groom and eventually the husband of the Shulamite woman. He describes her appearance in every detail. Her eyes, her lips, her neck, her breast, yes, even her teeth. Her teeth are like a flock of newly born ewes which come up from the washing. Now that would be comical if you didn't understand that we got to think in 900 B.C. terms, right? I don't know what description I would have or did use for Joycelyn when I saw her in that cornfield when I proposed to her. But I'm sure I didn't talk about her teeth. 
But what matters here is the fact that what Solomon says, you are all together beautiful. You are all together beautiful before your groom and eventually your husband. He loved you, as John says, before you loved him. Isn't that the case? What grace, what love, what advances of God upon us who did not deserve even him to approach us. As we understand the Old Testament, right? That temple was basically a temple that literally said, stay away. Only priests can enter into that temple. Only worthy priests can enter that temple. And only the high priest, once a year, can enter, enter the Holy of Holies. Stay away. That, that Ark of the Covenant was literally a symbol of Israel's rebellion. All the three elements that were in it were symbols of that rebellion. And yet that temple was there. Draw near to me in sacrifice. I still love you. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the second half of chapter 4 is an actual consummation act after they get married. The metaphor is a garden, not on much like the perfect relationship of Adam and Eve before they sinned. This is how Solomon describes the intimate moment. This garden. Both the groom and the bride speak invitingly to one another. And they partake, and they both desire to partake of the fruits of their love. The bride is a virgin, a garden unlocked, a spring sealed for the very day, this moment. Any young person in here, it's a special moment. Keep yourself pure for that moment. The imagery of Jeremiah 31 now must enter in. We can't talk about the Song of Solomon and its relationship with Israel, but also we must talk about the Song of Solomon in relationship to us. The parallelism is really neat here. It's in Jeremiah 31. You don't have to turn there. But very much like Hosea. Remember Hosea, right? The prophet had to marry an adulterous woman. God uses these things historically to communicate a message to his people, and that's what he's doing for you and I. Listen to Jeremiah. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. O virgin, your life shall be like a watered garden, and you shall never languish again. The virgin shall rejoice again and dance. I was a husband to them or her or Israel. But this is the new covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my laws within them. Now, we've got to remember the theological context of that. That theological context is the new covenant, speaking about the church. The church that will be initiated in put in force, I should say the covenant put in force by the blood of Christ. A covenant is not in force unless a man dies, the book of Hebrews says. Guess who the one died to put that new covenant in force? Guess what the terms of that covenant was? 
He was giving it to a virgin, drawing us like he did in courtship, considering us like a garden where we would be consummated in that relationship to our living Savior through his sacrifice. He would be a husband to us, declares the Lord. Do you see the imagery? The literal imagery that is saying, I not only saved you, but I am in relationship with you. I love you. I am your husband. You are my wife. And I will establish a new covenant, God says to Israel. And that will be future tense. And then he will establish his church. And both Jew and Gentile will enter into that marital relationship. What Jeremiah is prophesying to Israel are two different or two distinct things. God will restore Israel after 70 years of captivity. He would do this because he loves Israel as a husband does his wife. Secondarily, God will ultimately restore Israel, both Jew and Gentile, under the new covenant because God loves his spiritual children. And yes, we should not be surprised that Israel no longer is singularly, as in the Old Testament, the only children of God. We are the children of God, born not of the will of the flesh nor the will of the man, but of God. Again, God initiates the relationship. He saved you, whether the courtship was either long or short, and he established a relationship with you. And he's singing to you this day in poetry and in song. The Song of Solomon makes these truths more than just theology. It's relational. It's about love. It's about him dying on the cross for us. No love is greater than a man give his life for another, right? Then God gave his life for dreadful sinners like you and I. So when we read John twenty forty one, we even see what theologians like to point out sometimes is echoes. Now in a place, there was a garden, or there, I'm sorry, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had been laid. Can I say to you that that tomb to which Jesus was buried in three days and three nights to fulfill the prophecy of Jonah? Could have been a desert. Could have been anywhere else but a garden. But God so designs every single aspect of life. His relationship with us, yes. But life itself and every event. Remember when Peter slit off the ear of Malchus, the servant of one of the priests? He said, do you not know these things must happen this way? Do you not know that? The garden is not by a happenstance or a chance or serendipity. It's there for a reason. The echo is, of course, this new covenant has now been ratified. Christ's blood has been shed. He has now risen out of the tomb. And the new covenant is now established and in force. It's in force to which you and I no longer have to 
think that bulls and goats have to been slain, have to be slain for us, but the one and only sacrifice that God is satisfied with has given his life for you and I. Brothers and sisters, God consummated that relationship with us in that garden. Through his son, God married us to him, and forever the bond will never be broken because of the cross. We should not be surprised that when Mary Magdalene first and then the other woman go to the garden, they thought they saw a gardener. Revelation 19.7 says, Rejoice, the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. Are you ready for him? Thirdly, the marriage can be rocky. Ah, this is getting very real, isn't it? I can tell you that Joyce and I barely had an argument for the first 10 years of our marriage, and everything changed after that. (laughs) That's mostly true. I will say, though, in our older age, we do have a marriage of tranquility and of peace, a loving relationship, knowing what God has called us to, and that is simply to love Christ with all our heart, mind, and soul, and therefore our relationship will be established in that love through and in Christ. That's the only way marriages, Christian marriages, are established. Amen to that? We see in chapter 5 and 6 this rocky marriage. The scene is of a new bride asleep, but her heart is awake. Her husband knocks at the bedroom door. But she does not open the door, and her excuses allow her husband and for time to delay, and then the husband leaves. The opportunity is passed. Her husband was gone. By the way, not much unlike Revelation chapter 3 in the church of Laodicea. There are those within some churches, certainly in this day and age, who are naked and they don't know it. They are spiritually lukewarm. They're not either hot nor cold. And Jesus is knocking at the door to enter in. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him and sup with him. That's relational. And some churches are like the church of Laodicea, where Jesus is knocking at that door. That's the context. But by the way, that means let's not explain it away Some churches are like that. Some people in churches are like that. Question is, is there anyone here? When you know you're growing spiritually, very much like the bride, and this is one of my memory verses, my heart was awake when I was asleep. My lover was knocking at the door. He knocks at the door 24-7. He just doesn't invite you and then also greet you at your bidding. He wants you to come, absolutely. But this is not a casual relationship. It's a marital one. It's one where actually the two come together in unity in Christ. Her husband was gone, but the new bride now is lovesick. Why did she delay, we ask? She says to her maidens, this is my beloved and this is my friend. Oh, the relationship has improved so much. And then at this moment, she has just ruined it. I searched for him and I did not find him. 
Another translation says, my heart sank at his departure. There will be times in your marriage and there will be times in your personal relationship where Christ may seem far away. First thing you do, examine your own heart. Make certain it's not sin that separates you from you and your God, Isaiah 59. But on the other hand, sometimes I believe God just just does not speak to us as intimately as other times because, well, because he wants us to yearn for him. He wants us to draw close to him in the garden. He wants us, he wants us to go to him. That's the true sign of a relationship, by the way, in a husband and wife, right? The true sign of a relationship is that we go to one another. We trust one another. We console one another. We also counsel one another. And we lead one another in the sense of saying, right there, right where that cross is, that, that's where our relationship is the sweetest. Marital or many marital relationships are restored when the partner leaves, and I'm not suggesting that at all, by the way. That would be the wrong decision. But God does make uh, the absence, uh, absence makes the heart grow fondly, is the saying. I can say, by the way, this sermon was initiated by Joyce in saying, I did not know much about the Song of Solomon, and I'd like to know more about it. And I can only give that as a love offering to my wife. How is it for so many Christians that it's so easily to leave their Savior? And we have a great example in Galatians chapter 1, don't we? I am so surprised that you deserted Christ for another gospel, which is really not another gospel. Could you imagine that? That's what legalism will do. That's what a heart that is not fervent for God, on fire for the Lord, will do. That's what fellowship with the world will do. So many things that will keep us from him. You see, the Galatians had another lover. Not unlike the church of Ephesus in that chapter 2, right? Of the book of Revelation. You have lost your first love. You have another lover. Is it you that has another lover? So, how is it that many Christians so easily leave the Savior, the love of money, sports, status, yes, farms, jobs? Maybe it's the Savior himself and he offends you because following him is just simply not that easy. He does require of us, all of us. That's not easy. In John 6, many of the disciples left. We know the answer, right? When Jesus went to his own 12, when many of the other disciples, the general disciples that were following as a group with Jesus, he says, uh, are you uh, offended by me too? Um, will you leave also? And they said back to him, where are we going to go? You have the words to eternal life. Our relationship to God is a spiritual marriage. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder in relationship personally to him and also in our marriages. Has the scent and the fragrance of the Savior left you? Taste and see that the Lord is good. 
He can reestablish a marriage that may be a little fractured. Maybe there's arguments or uh, problems that just don't seem to go away in Christ. And you're trying to solve all your problems by yourself. I don't know. Let the word of God speak to your heart this day. And restore a marriage in godliness and righteousness and in truth. Lastly, the fourth or fifth category, depending on how you outline it. The marriage relationship must grow in love. Or it will fail, by the way. I saw my father being embittered with my mother for one reason for over 50 years. My father made an agreement with my mother that when they met, when they met in the 1940s that um, she would stop smoking if they were to get married. My mother never stopped. And so my father was embittered to my mother for my whole life of seeing them as husband and wife. And the sad thing about that is that there was so much promise in that relationship that could have bound them together and their children together. As a family, five of us, we were very saddened by the fact that that's the kind of marriage my parents had. Not every relationship and marriage is like that, and thank God for it, but that's my experience. When we compare chapter 4 with chapter 7, we see a marriage that began with such fervent love. Now it deepens to a marriage of tranquility. I became in his eyes as one who finds peace, the Shulamite woman. By the way, husbands, let me tell you this. Oh, I was told this years ago. Um, it's, in, it's in the Old Testament. Don't remember where it is. Um, but it was uh, commanded that men who were in the army in the nation of Israel, if they were newly married, stayed out of uh, fighting a war for a year. Why would that be the case? Because it's that important to establish the relationship. And I hope and pray that you establish that relationship first with Christ. You come to church regularly. You go to Bible studies. You go to women's group. You do all the things that are necessary and in your individual own studies and just readings and meditatings. And yes, read the Son of Solomon in your heart will be filled with the love of Christ and the love of your spouse as well. So when we compare these verses, we see tranquility and peace. We know a year has passed by because the vineyard is blooming again a year later. Now again, someone might find fault with this whole example using Solomon and the Shulamite woman, a very sinful man and only a year of marriage to compare it in. But God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, determined this. That's all we need to know. It's enough time for him to describe a, you could almost say, prototype or archetype of what a marriage should look like in love and commitment and everything else that is important for a marriage. Not a long time to judge this marriage, but Solomon in the Spirit of God gives a picture and a pattern for marriage, but mostly a pattern for a relationship with Christ. Marriage has its low times and its revivals. The language of intimacy at the beginning of the marriage, and here's the point, is similar at the end of that year. Can you imagine that? Uh, believe it or not, we just had an anniversary 
November 12th, 39 years. Right? I can tell you with certainty that the body may fail, but the intimacy has not. And I'll let that all be up in your own minds, how would I mean about that? <laughs> intimacy is love in motion. Is poetry in motion. A loving marriage will be a song in a sonnet to your children. They will want what you have. Do you agree with that? She says, the Shulamite woman, or he says, how beautiful and delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Does your wife, does your husband still charm you? Joyce and charm me. I tell you, you know, I still remember the text that I quoted, and I know I'm going backwards a little bit, but um, my heart ache at his absence, right? When Joyce and sometimes leaves now, when I'm now that I'm older and we're a little less busy, um, especially in the off season, I find myself looking out the window for Joyce and to drive back into the driveway. She's been gone too long. I never want that peace to be disrupted. And we know death is going to do that. That's why Christ is so important in your marriage. That's why Christ is everything. We have to long for the groom, Christ himself. Husbands, does your wife still charm you? Are you satisfied with her physically and emotionally? Would your wife say back to you, I am my beloved's and his desire. Oh, it's changed a little bit, hasn't it? His desire is for me. This age of pornography is horrible. You will ruin your marriage with it. I'm just giving you a warning. In Proverbs 31, 23, the husband is known in the city gates because his wife is an excellent wife. The Song of Solomon in chapter 8, the wife desires, now here's the true test, put your seatbelts on, to bring her husband into the house of her mother. It's all about the in-laws. <laughs> right? It's all about the in-laws. If your parents can accept your husband at the time of the courtship, you're in good graces not only with your in-laws, but you probably have made a good choice. Because the parents should be introspective about their ch children's choices. Right? It matters that much. You are the mature ones, husband and wives, for your children's destiny in choosing the proper future spouse. Do you want to show off your spouse to others? I do. One day, oh, I have to say this. I'm on my golf cart. You know, we got a couple golf carts on the farm. Joyson's literally on her back, I don't know, pulling weeds, doing something in the garden. And I drive up to the mailbox where a friend of mine is walking by. And I say, hey, how you doing? And he looks over to Joyson in the garden. He's looking at me, looking at Joyson in the garden, looking at me sitting on the cart. And I says, yeah, I got it pretty good, don't I? 
True story. True story. So do you want to show off your spouse? Do you want a young man and a young woman, young people? A spouse like that? Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But the woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. It's within the heart that matters. My prayer for every marriage in this church and future marriage is that you will be observed by the world as a mature, godly marriage that the world will say this, quote, and this is, by the way, the villagers speaking about the Shulamite woman rising to a hilltop with her new husband. Who is coming in the wilderness leaning on her husband? Are you still leaning on your husband and your husband leaning on you a year later, 10 years later, 30 years later? I believe the Song of Solomon primarily applies to Christ and his church. This is why I read Jeremiah 31. But you cannot get out of the tone of this in relationship to Christ and how our marriages are strengthened in and through it. Listen to the following questions. Are you spiritually married to Christ? If you're not, you're an unbeliever and you may even have a bad marriage because of your worldliness. Is your relationship spiritually passionate with Christ even more than with your spouse? That's really important. Comfort, being satisfied, just coming to church, you won't learn, you won't grow, your, church, your, your um, um, marriage will not grow as much either. Christ is everything. He is the one who first came to you. He is the one who first loved you. At the very least, we can respond in like manner back to him. Do you, commit, do you communicate this passion to God in your prayers and in your life? Do others see this love that you have for Christ? A good marriage is the greatest evangelistic message you can ever give to your kids. Do you have moments in your spiritual life when God is all that matters to you? Because I know it's hard. Seth did love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy mind, all thy soul. And I'll tell you, that's the hardest thing ever, and we will all fall short. But that doesn't mean that that law is still the first and most important, right? How beautiful and delightful you are. Do you say that to Jesus? How beautiful God in his Trinitarian personhood in relationship to one another and in relationship to you and I. Are they beautiful? Just look outside what he's created for us to uh, acknowledge the very beauty of God. God is aesthetically pleasing and he draws my heart and my mind towards him in all these things he's created for us. When these moments of loneliness, and by the way, trouble within a marriage, that always occur. Does God's absence cause you to long for him again? Do you search for him? You know, Jane Austen said this, and I hope this is not what you believe. Once a love is lost, it's lost forever. If that were the case with Jesus, with God himself, we would be lost forever. 
Or do you believe God's love is forever and his willingness to die on a cross proves it? Yes, yes, yes. Lastly, is your love for uh, God increasing and maturing? Do you want it to? It takes work to be a Christian. But it's by grace that you work. That's the difference. We are like John the Baptist. We are friends of the bridegroom who rejoice greatly because the bridegroom's voice we hear. How often do you hear his voice? Turn to Revelation 22 to finish up. I don't even know what time it is. Sorry about that, guys. I'm a little long. We're just about done. Actually, I'm going to read verse 15, too, 15 through 17. And the beauty of this, there's a contrast. This is the end of the book. This is a almost salutation, you could call it. Verse 15, outside, Revelation 22, outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Verse 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost, come. Come to Christ if you are not a bride of Christ. Come to him if you are and be matured within the faith. Because outside are the dogs and the immoral. God wants a pure bride. We are to be pure brides of Christ. He wants us to be sanctified in the spirit and in his love for the glory. Yes, I say again, the glory of his name. Let us finish in prayer. Father, we exalt your holy name. We love it that you sing to us. We love it that, oh Lord, you are poetic in your relationship with us. We love the fact that you think of us. Lord, help us, oh Lord, to be the true brides that you have called us to be in holy, virginal garments that are white and unstained by sin. And that we would, oh Lord, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy mind, and all thy soul. Amen.